Good morning. My name is Brian Hoover. Uh, we're going to be reading from Acts chapter 28. And if you're using the, the Bibles that are in the pews, you can find that on page 1074, or you can follow along on the screen. So this is going to be Acts chapter 28. We'll be looking at verses 1 through 28. After we were brought safely through, we then learned that the island was called Malta. The native people showed us unusual kindness, for they kindled a fire and welcomed us all, because it had begun to rain and was cold. When Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and put them on the fire, a viper came out because of the heat and fastened on his hand. When the native people saw the creature hanging from his hand, they said to one another, No doubt this man is a murderer. Though he has escaped from the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. He, however, shook off the creature into the fire and suffered no harm. They were waiting for him to swell up or suddenly fall down dead. But when they had waited a long time and saw no misfortune come to him, they changed their minds and said that he was a god. Now in the neighborhood of that place were lands belonging to a chief man of the island named Publius, who received us and entertained us hospitably for three days. It happened that the father of Publius lay sick with fever and dysentery, and Paul visited him and prayed, and putting his hands on him, healed him. And when this had taken place, the rest of the people on the island who had diseases also came and were cured. They also honored us greatly. And when we were about to sail, they put on board whatever we needed. After three months, we set sail in a ship that had wintered in the island, a ship of Alexandria, with the twin gods as a figurehead. Putting in at Syracuse, we stayed there for three days. And from there, we made a circuit and arrived at Regium. And after one day, a south wind sprang up. And on the second day, we came to Putoli. There we found brothers and were invited to stay with them for seven days. And so we came to Rome. And the brothers there, when they heard about us, came as far as the Forum of Appius and three taverns to meet us. On seeing them, Paul thanked God and took courage. And when we came into Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with the soldier who guarded him. After three days, he called together the local leaders of the Jews. And when they had gathered, he said to them, Brothers, though I had done nothing against our people or the customs of our fathers, Yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. When they had examined me, they wished to set me at liberty, because there was no reason for the death penalty in my case. But because the Jews objected, I was compelled to appeal to Caesar, though I had no charge to bring against my nation. For this reason, therefore, I have asked to see you and speak with you, since it is because of the hope of Israel that I am wearing this chain." And they said to him, We have received no letters from Judea about you, and none of the brothers coming here has reported or spoken any evil about you. But we desire to hear from you what your views are, for with regard to this sect, we know that everywhere it is spoken against. When they had appointed a day for him, they came to him at his lodging in greater numbers. From morning till evening he expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God, and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. And some were convinced by what he said, but others disbelieved. And disagreeing among themselves, they departed after Paul had made one statement. The Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers through Isaiah the prophet, Go to this people and say, 
You will indeed hear, but never understand. You will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull. And with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn, I would heal them. Therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Brian. Well, if you are a kid, you can be dismissed now. They're going to go downstairs uh, with Miss Carolyn there in the back and hear about the good news of Jesus, and then they're going to come back to us during the final few songs. It's a joy to be with you all this morning and to get to open up God's Word together. We are going to be concluding our series through the book of Acts next week, so I'm going to take us up through verse 28 here, and then Benjamin's going to bring us home next week with verses 30 and 31, and we will finish this long journey in the book of Acts together. Well, as human beings, although we don't consciously think like this, we see ourselves as part of a larger overarching story. Underlying all of our decisions and actions is a story that helps us to make sense of the world, of reality. And one helpful way to dig down and discover the story you use to make sense of life is to ask yourself three simple questions. Where have we been? Where are we now? And where are we going? For instance, a typical modern person in our world today would likely answer those questions in the following ways. Now, this is not to speak purely for everyone, but I think you would generally get this uh, answer to these three questions. Where have we been? Well, the universe came to be by some mysterious instance billions of years ago, and since then, the universe has been expanding and evolving by scientific processes at random. Where are we now? Human beings came on the scene late in this evolutionary process, And humans now dominate the hierarchy of creatures here on earth as the most intelligent, highly evolved creature. Where are we going? Our sun will die, the solar system will cool, and eventually the entire universe will contract back into itself. That story is one that underlies the choices and actions of many people today. And some of you here this morning likely resonate with that story. But as we come to the final chapter of the book of Acts, Luke is also presenting here for us a story by which we make sense of reality. See, in this concluding chapter, Luke, the author of Acts, inspired by God's spirit, ends this book in a way that we would not expect. So if you've been with us tracking through the book of Acts for a while, you'll know that Paul has been on this trajectory to meet Caesar, to stand trial before him in Rome. He was tried before the Jews and passed back and forth between local leaders, and he was on his way to Rome to be tried by Caesar. And so what we would expect to see in this final climactic chapter of Acts is this showdown between Paul, the main character, and Caesar. 
But rather than focusing on Paul, Luke here at the end has Paul kind of fade into the background and he foregrounds the theme that he began this book with, the kingdom of God. Now, the story that animated Jesus, Paul, the early church, and the story that, as verse 23 says, is the story of the whole Bible, is the story of the kingdom of God, of heaven coming to earth. And when the Bible speaks of the kingdom of God, it refers to a community in which God is present with a people that submits to his kingship and upholds his law. And so as we look at that story this morning, what I want us to see is that in contrast to our own self-authored stories, the book of Acts puts on display the kingdom of God as the true story of reality. A story which should result in our worship of God as king. So let's dive into this passage and look at those first 16 verses here first. But as we left Paul, Luke, and these other 274 passengers on board uh, that ship last week, they were caught in a terrible storm. But God promised Paul that he would deliver him and the other men aboard that ship. And he's faithful to that promise. And they all safely crash land onto this island, which we find out in verse 1 of chapter 28 is the island of Malta. Now, as, as Brian read that scripture for us this morning, and as maybe you were here with us last week and heard chapter 27 read, there are a ton of place names and islands and seas and nautical terms, and it's kind of hard to wrap our minds around. So I'm going to put, uh, have Caitlin, can you put the picture of the map on the screen? Um, so this is a map of where, that red line is where Paul has gone by sea in chapters 27 and 28. So in chapter 27, when he gets lost in the storm at sea, is when he comes down around the bottom of Crete, past that place called Fair Havens there. And so then he drifts, and the ship drifts in the sea all the way over to the island of Malta, all the way over there on the left. And so that's where we find them picking up in verse 1 of 28. And then chapter 28, 1 through 16, records his journey that they're up around Sicily and up to Rome. That's where he's going. And as we heard those verses read, you, you may have thought, like I did when I first read this text this week and refreshed myself with it, that this sounds a lot like if Crocodile Hunter lost and Gilligan's Island was all mashed up into one TV show. Uh, it, it's wild what goes on in these verses here. The, the crew's brought in and, and shown hospitality by these natives to the island. Paul gets bit by a deadly snake, and he doesn't die, and then they all turn from thinking he's a criminal to thinking that he's God. They meet the leader of the island, they heal people, and then God brings them safely to Rome. And in verse 16, we see this fulfillment of Paul's desires and God's plan to send him to Rome. Would you read verse 16 again with me? It says, And when we came into Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with the soldier who guarded him. Now we should read that verse and breathe a sigh of relief. At last, Paul has made it. To Rome. 
This has been going on since chapter 19, verse 21, when Paul spoke his desire to go to Rome to preach the gospel. And all of Acts up until this point from there has been showing God's faithfulness to get him there. The leader of this newborn church has come to the belly of the beast of the Roman Empire. And the gospel of God's kingdom is poised to be proclaimed to the ends of the earth as Jesus promised that it would very way back at the beginning of Acts in chapter 1, verse 8. And this all happened through a man who sought before all else the kingdom of God. Now, this journey that Paul embarks on here, that, that's climaxing in this voyage across the sea in 27 and beginning of 28, is, is an incredible journey. For, for all of us who love to, to travel and go new places in here, even though the way he gets there probably isn't the way we would choose to get there, it, it stokes in us, I think, a bit of wanderlust. I think it, it should stoke in us the way that I feel in me whenever I see a picture of Yosemite National Park. And as Paul goes preaching the gospel and following Jesus to proclaim his kingdom, his life is a wild ride. And so many of us today in our world try to fill the boredom that's brought on by our secular age by swiping constantly on phone screens and clicking buttons on a remote through the means of travel, right? So if you're anything like me, you, you try to, when you have vacation time, you're like, okay, I'm going to get an Airbnb in the woods, not around people, preferably with grizzly bears, uh, or I'm going to go on a backpacking trip somewhere remote and stoke this desire to travel and this wanderlust in me. And, and as we desire these things and as we do this, what we're really desiring, what we all are really longing for is glory. We're longing for our lives to have significance, to have adventure, to have purpose, to have importance. In seeking the kingdom of God, as Paul does, a vision for life opens up to us that rejects the bored malaise of our age. You see, Paul trusted that his life was about a mission and kingdom bigger than his own personal pleasure and happiness. And as a result, his life was opened up to true glory. Do you believe that God is up to big things around you? Do you have faith that he can use your life for grand, glorious purposes? His plan to spread the kingdom of God across this world. This passage proclaims to us the good news that in Christ, your life is not boring. As the author Paul David Tripp puts it, unbelief shrinks the size of our own life down to the size of our own life. But notice this, though. Even as he was the leading apostle of the church, the way in which Paul pursued the kingdom of God was through daily acts of faithfulness, no matter what the circumstances were. His grand work of being an apostle included two years in jail in Jerusalem and two more years in house arrest in Rome. These are not glamorous circumstances. This is not what we typically think of as grand and glorious. And yet for Paul, these two years spent in Rome were some of his most productive for the kingdom. 
He wrote various New Testament letters as he sat in house arrest. He welcomed others to proclaim the gospel. What Paul did is he simply kept his focus on seeking the kingdom of God one step at a time, one day at a time. And his mundane faithfulness to pursuing the kingdom in jail cells, in backwater towns, and under house arrest led his life to open up to glory, to importance. Jesus desires today to work mightily through his church. But the means by which he does that is through our ordinary faithfulness through our daily pursuing and seeking the kingdom of God and letting all other things be added unto us, as Jesus says in Matthew chapter 6. And so wherever the Lord has put you, seek his kingdom. Commit to faithfully pray for your community group or for those Christians close to you. Love and teach your children. Serve the poor in our community. Seek to get to know your non-Christian friends. Pursue to kill sin in your life. These are all relatively ordinary things in the Christian life. But as we do them, day after day, our lives open up to glory. And we see the importance and the significance of what God is up to in our everyday acts of faithfulness as he builds his kingdom. And as we do this, will be freed from the shackles of boredom that often leave us enslaved. Well, from this providentially granted location in in house arrest, Paul begins to minister in, in Rome. And he starts with the Jewish leaders, as we read in verse 17, onward. And and he invites all these Jewish people over to his house, and he they he has this Bible study. And it sounds a lot like the Bible study that Jesus leads with the two men on the road to Emmaus at the end of Luke's first volume in Luke 24. He talks about how Jesus is the fulfillment of all the scriptures. And as he does this, there seems to be an interest from these Jewish people. And and we're led to think, maybe this is the time. Maybe they will listen this time to the message of the gospel. But then we receive what has now become an expected response in the book of Acts from these people. If you would read with me verses 24 to 27. It says, And some were convinced by what he said, but others disbelieved. And disagreeing among themselves, they departed after Paul had made one statement. The Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers through Isaiah the prophet, Go to this people and say, you will indeed hear but never understand, and you will indeed see but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed. Lest they should see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their hearts, and turn, and I would heal them. Now Paul's preaching, Paul's teaching from the scriptures elicits this twofold response. Some believe and some don't believe. And as he cites this warning from Isaiah chapter 6, verses 9 and 10, I think a key word that we need to clue in on in order to understand this warning well is that word dull in verse 27, where it says, for this people's heart has grown dull. Now, that word dull 
is actually better translated from the Greek, I would argue, as fat. That's what the word literally means. So for this people's heart has grown fat. Now, medically speaking, the the image that's coming to mind here as we read this is of a heart that has been, that's had so much fat built up around it that it cannot function properly. It's talking about heart disease. And the question then becomes then, okay, so what is it that causes the heart of these people to grow fat? Well, the quotation from Isaiah 6 here in Acts 28 also has parallels to a Psalm, to Psalm 115. And so I'm going to read for us verses 4 through 8 of Psalm 115. And as I do, listen carefully to the similarities of this passage with Acts 28. And I think we'll start to get a clue into what it is that makes the people's hearts fat. So this is Psalm 115, starting in verse 4. It says, The people's idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak, eyes but do not see. They have ears but do not hear, noses but do not smell. They have hands but do not feel, feet but do not walk. And they do not make a sound in their throat. Those who make them become like them, and so do all who trust in them. Did you hear the similarity there? And did you catch the end? Those who make and worship these lifeless, inanimate, deaf and dumb idols become like them. And that language is intentionally used to say that the people have become like the idols that they worship. They have become deaf and dumb just as their idols are. And this is not just a message for ancient superstitious people. We are no less religious than they are. We worship things which are not God. Things which are not meant to be worshipped as God. That's the biblical definition of idolatry. And you see, as our hearts tune into the lies of false gods, we become deaf to hear the promises of the true God. That the true spiritual state of these people in Acts 28 is that of sedentary people eating only the junk food of idolatrous worship. So think about it this way. If you eat Doritos and drink Coke the night before you have a big run planned or a big workout planned, you're probably going to be able to push through if you're in decent shape, but you're going to feel it during that workout the next day. If you eat Doritos and drink Coke for six months and don't exercise and then try to get up and go on a run, you're going to quit before a mile is gone and you're going to be in serious pain the whole time. It's not going to be pleasant for you. And the warning of this passage is that the same reality is true of our hearts. The more you suck the lies of false gods down your gullet, the harder it will be to hear the promise of God and respond in seeking his kingdom rather than the petty, small, insignificant kingdoms of your idols. See, believing the false promises of idols makes us as lifeless as them, which in turn makes it harder to respond to the promises of God's kingdom. 
That's the dire nature of this warning that Paul is giving here. Now, we we don't know the particular nature of this Jewish people's idolatry. It isn't given for us in Acts 28. But based on what we know about these Jewish leaders and, and teachers from the rest of the book of Acts, I think it's safe to conclude that their idolatry had something to do with them putting religious customs and symbols like their temple ahead of the true temple, Jesus, who they should have been worshiping and pursuing. Now, granted, we're not first century Jewish people. So our idols that we worship and we believe the lies of are going to take different forms. So we might believe the idol of sex that promises fulfillment of all of our sexual desires if we simply will give into it and worship it as an ultimate thing. Or we might believe the idol of the family that promises us that if we put our family life above pursuing Jesus, that we will have a perfect, idyllic, domestic household. Or we might believe the idol of self that promises us that if we can just find and express our true self, then we will really and truly be happy and whole. And as we think about this, notice the thrust of this warning from Acts 28. Is that these idols can exist and we can grow deaf to the promises of God all the while having our Bibles open. These Jewish leaders were Bible experts at a Bible study. And yet because they had continually listened to the lies of their idols... They couldn't hear the true promise of Jesus and his kingdom of grace. I mean, think about even the way that Paul phrases the gospel here. Paul here in verse 21, I believe it is, maybe not, verse 20, he speaks of the gospel here as the hope of Israel. This is the message that would have satisfied and fulfilled the hearts of these Jewish leaders if they only would have had the ears to hear it. And yet they're too busy listening to the unfulfilling, unsatisfying lies and false promises of their idols. So here's one diagnostic question to ask yourself to see if you are currently enamored with the lies of your idols. What has been your heart's response in recent days and weeks when you hear the Bible preached or when you read the word of God on your own? Have you been bored or unenthused? Have you been quick to apply the word to other people rather than to your own heart? Are there parts of the scripture that you've tried to ignore or keep at arm's length or wish would just disappear out of the text entirely? Have your ears only perked up in a sermon when we are talking about your pet theological or political issue? See, we are all either believing in, worshiping, and becoming like the true God or believing, worshiping, and becoming like idols. And this morning, through his word, God is speaking his promises, and we desperately need to hear them. The question for us, though, today, as we read this text, is are we listening? Do we have ears 
to hear? Or has our worship and pursuit of the junk food promises of false gods caused us to grow numb to the promises of the true God, which would satisfy us? But to those who pursue fatty and false promises from idols, this text holds out a beautiful promise of the kingdom of God for us. Let's listen this morning. Read with me verses 26 through 28 again here. It says, Go to this people and say, You will indeed hear but never understand, and you will indeed see but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed. Lest they should see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. Therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. As you read that, the question that might result from that is, Okay, does that mean then that God is forsaking his mission to reach the Jewish people? Is it saying that God has, in a sense, taken his missionary, set his missionary sights and turned them from the target of the Jewish people onto the target of the nations? Is that what's going on here? I think at first glance, it's easy to read this passage that way. But I think that's to misunderstand what's going on here. See, rather than changing where he has his sights set, God is widening out his scope and broadening the target of his missionary love. The bullseye of God's mission is expanding to encompass the nations. But that's not to ignore the Jewish people as well. Uh, Clearly, God isn't excluding the Jewish people from embracing the gospel because, as we read in verse 24, some Jews clearly accepted his message and preaching about Jesus as the fulfillment of these kingdom promises in the scriptures. In fact, this passage actually teaches that God holds out his gracious promises to all who worship idols, to all people, no matter how fat and dull their senses have become. So he's expanded the promises of his grace to include Gentiles who are lost, worshiping the pagan gods of sex, power, nature, and any other thing. And yet in expanding those promises, he still holds out hope to the Jewish people, to those who worship the gods of religious duty. And in both of these realities, the expanding of the scope of God's mission to the idolatrous nations and to idolatrous Israel, we behold the essence of what makes Jesus' kingdom beautiful. You see, Jesus' kingdom is not one in which spiritually unfit people have to start eating healthy and getting to a certain level of fitness before they can join in. The only requirement of welcome into the kingdom of Jesus, as verse 27 tells us, is to turn. The only fitness you need for the kingdom of God is to recognize that you are spiritually obese and weighed down. As that great hymn, Come Ye Sinners, says about coming to Jesus, all the fitness he requires is to feel your need of him. 
See, the beauty of our king is that he doesn't come to you as a personal trainer who tells you how to shed the pounds and get your life together. He comes to heal you completely if you would only turn to him. He comes to give you a better story, a story of grace, a story about himself. As you hear this promise of the kingdom today, see in his kingdom story, a story better than any we could conjure up in this life, better than any story we could author ourselves. Where have we been? The world was created good by God, and we were created in his image to worship him, and yet we have all chosen to listen to the lies of idols and rebel against our loving king. Our lives are, are dull, boring, painful, broken, and torn apart as, our resu- as a result of our continual pursuit of these false gods. And where are we now? We live in an age in which by his sacrificial death and glorious resurrection, Jesus is king. And for all who are members of his kingdom by grace, through trusting in Jesus, our life consists in displaying the glories of his kingdom by seeking his kingdom in righteousness in all of life above all else. And so despite our sin, we have a glorious and grand purpose now. And where are we going? We are headed for a future in which Jesus sets up his kingdom fully here on earth and where all of our idols are trampled under King Jesus' feet. Church, look outside of yourself to King Jesus and his better story. The size of your life is not limited to the size of your own life in the gospel. Jesus is Lord and that changes everything. This is the promise of the kingdom of God and this is the promise of the book of Acts. The question is, is this your story? Does this story truly define your life, your thoughts, your behavior, every part of you? And this morning, I would encourage all of us, no matter where we are, no matter what we've been struggling with, no matter what idols we've been worshiping, I would encourage us all, myself included, to come to Jesus and find healing in him for our weighed down hearts. And as we do that, we will discover a purpose for our life far more significant and far more weighty than any that our own stories can offer to us. Jesus is Lord, and that changes everything. Would you pray with me? So... Holy Spirit, we pray that you would come and change our hearts. We know that we are helplessly enamored with our idols. We know that we buy into their lies and their promises all the time. So, Spirit, make Jesus more real to us than any of our idols. May we see in him not just the hope for Israel, but the hope for us all. And a story that would truly fulfill the longings and desires of all of our hearts as we are caught up in worship of our King. Lord, show us the ways 
in which that kingdom story applies to us today. And allow us, give us ears to hear. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.